Before I get to today's show, I wanted to welcome all the new listeners who have started following the Taste Podcast over the past couple of months. If you're new or even a longtime listener and enjoy these conversations with folks like Jonathan Kung, Jenny Rosenstrach, Alton Brown, Andy Barigani, and Jamie Oliver, to name a few, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you are listening to the show. These reviews mean the world to us, and you know what? I'm going to read your review on the show on a future episode. You know what to do here, and I thank you for listening. But my good luck was to arrive at Food & Wine right around the time that the Food Network was starting in the early 90s, and that changed everything. You really can't overstate how much that went from, like, before that people were chefs because they weren't good at math and they needed beer money. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today, I have a really, really great conversation with Kate Crater, who is currently the food editor at Bloomberg. Now, I've known Kate for many years, and I consider her a friend and a colleague. And we talk about her long history working at Food and Wine and now at Bloomberg. We talk about what it was like to run the Best New Chefs program, an influential observation about the world of food and how it's changed over the years. We also talk about her upcoming move to London and some of the stories she's excited to report. We also talk a little bit about XTC and Blur. Oh, yeah, you know, Britpop will always enter the conversation when it can here on the Taste Podcast. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kate Grader. Kate Crater, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Matt, hi, how are you? Hi, it's been a couple of years, couple uh, three years, four years. Um, I can't even count, but seeing you in real life, my heart is exploding. Right I love now. seeing you too. You, I've known you for a while, and and honestly, as a person, you're incredible, and just like hanging out with you is a wonderful thing. Uh, that I got to you know know a bit, but like I knew you most as a writer, as a journalist, as an editor, and I want this conversation to go into that history because uh, you have a really rich one. But tell me to start, when did you realize food and chefs and restaurants were such a rich topic to cover? <laughs> I think I stumbled into it. If only I'd known. If only I could say I just had the foresight and I saw the crystal ball and I called it. But. Um, my my starting story is is actually sweet. I went to a very liberal arts college in Ohio called Kenyon, and it was so liberal arts that you did not have to declare your major. Nobody yeah. really, nobody really gave a shit. Can you, <laughs> you can say shit. Yeah, we're, we're good. Nobody we're... gave no. I mean, nobody was like, "What's your like? Are you going to go work at Chase? Are you going to go do this?" And so I was um, a little bit rudderless, but I was driving home with my dad um, from college in Ohio back to my home in New York City. And so finally he was like, what are you going to (laughs) do? Like, can you imagine, like, after college, my dad was like, what are you going to do? So so I said, I guess I'm going to go to law school because he was a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was an unhappy lawyer. So he said, you know, you like to write and you like to eat, so maybe you should go work for Food Magazine. And this was the 80s, and Food Magazine Center so very different than they um, mm-hmm. are right we'll now. We'll get into that for sure. Yes, we get to talk about that. I do like to eat, and I i mean, I like to talk about food. So I was like, and I wasn't always an obedient kid, but I saw the truth in my dad's words. And so I was going to London, in fact, and um, I got a job through, um, through Good Luck and some connections at Family Circle magazine there. 
And I just felt like I'd found my tribe. Like people talked about like if you put lard in pie crusts and maybe they were saying mince instead of ground beef. But I was like, oh, my gosh, I was so happy. And so that's where it all started. And then from there, I went to cooking school. So I'm not the best cook. But but you actually had an education. You're you're heading back to London. We'll get to that um, as the food editor at Bloomberg currently. But before that role, important, big role, you had an even bigger role. I'm not going to diminish Bloomberg, but I think at the time it was like one of the most coveted roles in all of food. Um, For over 20 years, you were at Food & Wine magazine, various roles. Most recently, you were the restaurant editor, I think you were. Is that right? right. And your job was to really pull together the best new chefs. And I'll, I'll just say quickly, The Best New Chefs is certainly one of the most, if not the most, um, influential awards program, I think, outside of James Beard, potentially. But James Beard is very different. This is like recognizing, you know, 10 to 20 or 15 rising chefs in the world of food. You were there for 20 years. So my question is, my first question is, is, you know, what brought you to food and wine, and what were your what was your early life like there? <laughs> My early life there. So um so this is way back. This feels like around the time that the dinosaurs roamed the earth. Ah, what's the but, year? What's the year? Um I started there in 93. I want to say that we were just like we had computers, but we didn't have like email <laughs> or messaging. And so I remember when you would start to hear the ding of messaging when when it first became something <laughs> you would get and you were like, "Oh, did he just text me?" You know, I mean, not text. Of course you didn't say text, but I was it was it was another planet and the best thing that like everybody fought to get we would get like the weekly food sections from like the Los Angeles Times and the San Francisco Chronicle and I would like fight to get the one from LA to see Jonathan Gold because Jonathan I think Jonathan Gold was writing then he must have been but that was that was I was always super interested in the LA one like I fought I would like steal it off people's desks (laughs) like it was before you could just what an analog world it was exactly an analog world um, but I got to food and wine. It was a little bit, it was, I was very lucky and it was through connections. I went to a cooking school in France called La Varenne mm-hmm. and it was a little bit of, um, it was like a, it was a place where you sort of, you worked hard. It was a cooking school in France one run by a woman called Anne Willen, who, um, mm-hmm. is iconic and fantastic and who wanted to be Julia Child mm-hmm. and in, in England, but you worked really hard there if you were an intern, which I was a stagiaire. And um, and so anybody who knew you went to La Varenne as a stagiaire knew that you had worked incredibly hard and you knew your shit. And so when you got out of there, it was sort of just a question of whether you went to gourmet or Bon Appetit or food and wine. It those were the three bit, major players at the time those in were the three play, Those were the three players in the 90s. And it wasn't it wasn't completely a secret handshake situation. Like, that's not exactly right. But, like, yeah. you were, like, game sees game or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. You're, you, you knew that if someone went there— you would have someone. I mean, it was basically like an alumni from your college. It's like was. Columbia Journalism School for the New York Times. I'll say it. It's like Truth. definitely a feeder to uh, that establishment. So for the big three, we're talking about Bon Appetit, Gourmet, Food and Wine. Now, what type of competition are we talking about between the three brands? Are we talking about cordial civil, like see each <laughs> other at events? Or are we talking about like, like blood sport? That's a great question. No, it was it was definite frenemies, I think, at, <laughs> at that time. And the fortunes of each have, you know, risen and fallen over the years. But at that time, Gourmet really was like, I mean, actually, 
gourmet sort of ruled the roost, you know, and it was the one, it was a, like a legacy brand and everybody's grandmother and yeah. great grandmother maybe had like stacks of them. And you could have your, you know, you could read about Scottish castle, what you would serve for tea at the Scottish castle before yeah. you went out horseback riding. Um, at that time, Bon App was really a suburban magazine, like you and suburban, not in a positive way. Yeah. And food and wine. Still but, not positive. I'm sorry. <laughs> no offense, yeah. uh-huh. Thank you. Truth. <laughs> um, but um, and food and wine was at that time. I mean, I'm always I'm food and wine forever. But yeah. it was a little bit of a time when it was like chicken goes around the world and you would shoot it in like a hazy, like a hazy kind of mm-hmm. um, with a hazy filter and be like this is Filipino chicken with you know I don't know it would soft focus lens was definitely an iconic kind of uh, way to do know, it way to do it yeah literally chicken goes around the world that's cool I mean what, when you're when you're entering food and wine um, as a former culinary student um, you've got some real cred you know what were some of your early tasks and what was your first role there I mean, I spent a lot of time at the Xerox machine. Let's be honest. At a <laughs> yeah. time when that was like when that was like a key thing to do when you had to make copies for everybody because you couldn't email them. I basically did research. I was I started off as a food editor. Like you made the smart distinction that I ended up as a restaurant editor, but yeah. I started as a food editor. I'm very, very good at something that's very useless, which is recipe editing. <laughs> so if you ever have a recipe, throw it to me because I'm very good at reading it, make sure, making sure it's in order, making sure that the proportions of things look pretty accurate. It's a skill that you have absolutely no need, that you have less need for Except every day. Except in this building where, we, this where building. we make cookbooks and yes. edit food recipes all day. Are you listening to Random House? Yeah, we're, we're, um, I, I agree. It's, it's a, a, a kind of a niche skill, but I, I feel like I know my way around a paper edit. I remember Francis Lamb, my editor, was telling me like about his time as a paper editor, and I think paper editing recipes is a, definitely a skill. Yeah, maybe it's niche, but it's a skill. Well, it was. It's. It's. I mean, it is a skill, but it is one of those things where it used to be such a big deal if you made a mistake in yeah. the paper. If you wrote like one and a half cups of flour instead of a half a cup of flour, it was a disaster. So um, yeah, and now it's the kind of thing where you can just correct online. You know, you can just like easily. Like change it back. It's like no, it's no big deal. But then it was like a big deal. I mean, you would probably get letters by the by the kilogram, yeah. right? You would probably kilogram. get so many letters if you uh, mess something up, right? Yeah, no, it was a big like that was the kind of thing that was a big deal. So I spent a lot of time editing recipes. But my good luck was to arrive at Food and Wine right around the time that the Food Network was starting in the early '90s, and that changed everything. You really can't mm-hmm. overstate how much that went from, like, before that, like, chefs, people were chefs because they weren't good at math and they needed beer money, you know, or because <laughs> <laughs> they'd gone to jail overnight and needed to make bond. But then with Food Network, all of a sudden, literally, it, it didn't exactly happen literally overnight, but it was it was so quick that all of a sudden people became, like, these chefs, especially, like, I mean, it was the guys especially, but, like, Emeril would... It, it was like he was BTS. Like yeah. he would have to wear like a hoodie if he went to something like Aspen Food and Wine, which was the food festival um, that we that Food and Wine does annually. Like he would literally have to wear a hoodie and have security. Yeah, it it's crazy nuts. how that 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 change was so rapid. Starting with Emerald and Rachel Ray, and mm-hmm. obviously Martha was always there too. But it must have been really fun to be part of that energy towards food because you, it, so many new like. Readers were coming into your magazine through Food Network, I'm sure. Did that change the way you edited the magazine? 
Um, yes, for sure it did. Like, and and the other thing that changed a lot, I have got to shout out Dana Cowan, who yeah. was the editor in chief at Food sure. and Wine. She got there a little bit after I did, and then you know, it, like Food and Wine really was. Like, I don't know if it was sleepy exactly, but it certainly wasn't timely. And yeah. Dana came in and she was like, right, if we're going to do a story on salmon, we're going we're gonna to take off the soft focus lens. Yeah. But we're also going to, like, talk to fishmongers and see what their favorite recipes are and do a sidebar on wild salmon versus farm salmon and just add a lot more layers of interest and information. And now, now that layout seems a little bit tired, like multiple sidebars, but... At the time, then, it really was like it pushed Food & Wine to be this energizing, exciting, very current magazine. Yeah. the Dana's uh, – and I'd love to have Dana on the podcast. Hopefully, <gasps> you have her on you soon. Should. Yeah, and talk similar – talk about the change. I want to – yeah, great, great to shout out Dana. Let's talk a little bit about what you um, – maybe some of the trends because, you know, trend prediction is a big part <laughs> of the job, right? So I want to ask you – you know, back in like the 90s, what were some of the trends that you maybe you predicted correctly? First that. And then I'm, I got to ask about some trends that maybe you got wrong. <laughs> I know that's a, that was that's a very good question. I'm thinking about that question. I feel like it was more some of the um, some of the chefs that I got right, you know, for Best New Chefs, because you were talking about Best New Chefs, yeah. which started I th- the franchise might have started a year before I got there. But it really picked up steam when I got there. Like, I was really excited to work on it. And it was really something when we started to highlight chefs and really put them on the cover. And it was at the Mm -hmm. time when they were becoming superstars. And Food & Wine was also sort of smart about making, you know, making them be the equivalent of brand managers. So, um, So we had some great people. So I think, like, one of my best calls, which I will stand by forever, is Dave Chang. Like, I picked Dave Chang to be a Best New Chef in, I think it was 2006. Yeah, I mean, that's when uh, Noodle Bar... It was a year or two after Noodle Bar. Yeah. 2004 was a huge year for New York City restaurants. Like a Definitely. bunch of seminal restaurants opened. I think Prune might have opened that year. Um, Mamafuku opened that year. WD-50 might have opened that year. But it's kind of interesting because it was basically a response to, to um, 9-11. Yeah. You know, that the city had been so devastated and it came back a couple years after that in a very strong way in multiple places around the city. Um, So some of those I feel really good about. A lot of the chefs we called out in um, 99, Suzanne Goen Mm -hmm. was the best new chef. Paul Kahan, who yeah, I think Chicago, is a, Los Angeles and Chicago, respectively. Yeah, no, we had, like, I th- we called out, yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, we called out Chicago as, like, the destination food city at a time when it was really coming up. Um, those are those are some of the trends and the people that I feel yeah. like really good about. Yeah, I have to ask you the the trends you got wrong. There <laughs> must have been something like like this ingredient was going to really soar. Like this preparation. I mean, were you like? I mean, it could be like molecular edge gastronomy. <laughs> You know, back um, then when they were calling it edge cuisine, which is hilarious to think about. I might have put too many eggs in the basket of molecular cuisine. <laughs> like, I feel like I, I was I was so, like, that was like nothing I'd ever seen before. But I think the thing that I got most wrong that plays to, like, the bigger picture is that I, I really was like, chefs are not going anywhere. Like, chefs are going to continue to be the star. Like, you asked about... Um, you know, the competition between Food & Wine and Bon App and Gourmet and Food & Wine picked up Best New... Like, we did Best New Chefs and for a while it was the hottest franchise. Like, mm. it was the best thing you could do and even, like, Jonathan Gold, who was the... who's the sadly 
now deceased um, Pulitzer Prize winning food writer who was at the LA Times but also a gourmet mm-hmm. would frequently tell me that everyone was always jealous of the of our Best New Chef platform. And then Bonap came up with Best Restaurants, which I was like, that's that's stupid. Like mm-hmm. they're just they're just ripping us off. And then of course nothing is forever. Everything's cyclical and restaurants became cooler than chefs. And yeah. you knew like if every chef is at some point on like Top Chef or Hell's Kitchen mm-hmm. or has some some TV show or some award it's too much, you know, and also like those chefs who were so famous, like Tom Colicchio and Dave Chang, you knew that you weren't going to see them in their restaurant because they had multiple restaurants. So it started to go back to being about an experience. And mm-hmm. um, I totally, totally missed that boat. Like I did not see like the rise or the- of the actual establishment and having the establishment um, surpass the actual chef, the celebrity chef. Yeah. I mean, the celebrity chef has definitely waned. I mean, the interest in it has waned in the past decade, I would even say. I, I think it obviously takes a team to run a restaurant, not just one person. I right? mean, that's exactly the message. That's exactly true. And and that was definitely coming up. You know, you definitely had a sense that it wasn't just you wouldn't say like John and Vinny, uh, you know, John and Vinny's in Los Angeles. You would say them and their sous chef sure. and everybody. And, and it came up here and chefs and it's not like chefs necessarily wanted to be like the only lead singer like they would chat at their chefs too Mm -hmm. but then you'd say like oh that's too many names you know Mm -hmm. i mean stuff that stuff that you would not say now but watching the emphasis and the focus change from chefs to restaurants is definitely happened and i did not i was a denier (laughs) do you still hang out with some of the best new chef winners like do you are you still friends with them i don't get to see them so much anymore but i love suzanne like if i can ever go to los angeles i love suzanne go and i do love paul kahan like i would see him when i went to chicago i love michael simon Mm -hmm. who um was the best new chef from cleveland who's now more um who now i think he still has some restaurants but he is um he's um, a food network star um i would i would see him in a minute i love him but yeah, no, there's a lot of them. You you form friendships with them. Sure. It's a little bit like you go to boot camp. Like in the midst of Best New Chef, you sort of end up doing like a million phone calls with them to do yeah. interviews and to set things up. And you bond. You know their wives or their partners. You know their kids. Like it's yeah. To this day, it's a great program. What they're doing now, uh, Best New Chef, is always something that I look at as a writer. I think it's always been. Um, future looking. I think Mm -hmm. it's always been uh, a place where I I always find inspiration. It's always a place that I find new names. Mm -hmm. Always to this day. Oh, good. Um, Let's talk about your, you left Food and Wine and you soon became, it's like your second phase of your Mm -hmm. career and it's, and it's a big job. The food editor at Bloomberg. And like, I was like, wow, that's a crazy job. That's a big job because you're covering not just chefs and restaurants, but like CPG, consumer packaged goods. <laughs> you, you, you're covering the economics of food. Um, I wanted to know, um, like, what is your beat at Bloomberg? Like, what do you like to cover? Um, so Bloomberg's Bloomberg's like a news organization, yep. and it's exciting. It's really cool to be surrounded by people who are so smart and so good at what they do, whether they're talking about things that I have no idea, like cold derivatives mm-hmm. or – like energy NFTs in, NFTs exactly <laughs> joke. um joke <laughs> truth though um it's it's very um it's it's exciting it's exciting and also now news is really important like you can't say enough about how accurate and good news is the most important thing and so in that way knowing 
knowing what's happening and knowing the reporters that are covering, you know, that are on Air Force One with Biden and stuff like that is is really exciting. But that said, um, there was a challenge for me, which is that I've always at Food and Wine, you sort of always walked on the sunny side of the street. And so if Gabrielle, if someone said Gabrielle Hamilton domesticated the pig, he'd be like, great, let's do that story. Gabrielle Hamilton domesticated (laughs) the pig. And Bloomberg, if you say if, you, if you're like, have a story, Gabrielle Hamilton domesticated the pig, um, they'll be like, okay, you have to go to the mayor's office and see if there's any liens against her property. Like, you have to look for the negative dark. Yeah. You want to do, you want to make sure you have balanced news reporting, which is really helpful, but not, you know, it's not in my DNA to do that. Yeah, so it's, it's not always- in service of the subject. And in the food industry, I, I find, like, you want to support, you want to walk on the sunny side of the street with, with food professionals, chefs, makers. You know, it, it's kind of hard to be skeptical. You obviously don't want to punch down, right? Punching down is kind of the worst thing, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly, that's such a good way to say it. And and even, I mean, sometimes, I mean, you do, you, you do sometimes have to ask like, okay, Danny Meyer, let's talk PPP loans. Like you, you I mean, there's yeah. some things that are really out there that you want to discuss, but in terms of digging up dirt and going, you know, and all that, that's, that's, is not historically where I live. And that's where I've really had to work hard mm-hmm. to try and figure out how to do that in a way that feels okay to me, but you feel like you're not glossing over. The Bloomberg reporting moves markets, so to speak. It changes stock prices. Have you ever moved markets within your reporting? Have you um, felt like you've dropped a bit of news on the terminal that's been on then on CNBC <laughs> and Bloomberg television network? Um, you know what? That is, oh my God, Matt, <laughs> you, you should come work at Bloomberg. <laughs> I might have I done something, um, Uber, like when Uber delivery was going up, yeah. I, um, I had, a, had a scoop or two on Uber that might have um, that might have been might have moved a little bit and maybe something on Sweetgreen. I mean, both of those companies, pretty secretive about the reporting. I've reported on both companies before, and, and it's tough to get information out of both of those companies. And I think, uh, I mean, the the whole delivery, I would call it a debacle. This is just mm-hmm. me. I, it's such a debacle. Mm-hmm. It's destroying restaurants. I'm so not into delivery delivered food via app. I just, I've not heard anything good about it from when speaking to chefs and small business owners. I just, I hear that. I'm just It makes my skin crawl. I mean, push back on me, please, because I, no, I feel like I, I can't. I mean, I, I feel like the good thing about it is that people are having these conversations and you're much more aware and you're tipping in cash if you do, you know, if you do use them. But I have to say I'm definitely someone like I eat in restaurants or I order from restaurants. Mm-hmm. The directly, not not do, the ordering from the app. And um, sorry to walk on the not sunny side of the street <laughs> with that one. Um, but let's talk about <laughs> Tesla because you wrote a story. I want to hear it talk about a couple of your recent stories about <laughs> Tesla breaking into the restaurant industry. It's so interesting. You know, we're in this world of, of EV um, everything, which is great. And obviously recharging stations are going to be part of our everyday uh, lives like gas stations. And I mean, are you seeing recharging stations, especially run by Tesla, becoming hubs for food, cafes, coffee shops. Is that the kind of thing you think you're seeing in the future? I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I feel like let's not give Tesla any more oxygen, even though I just did, even though like two weeks ago I did. Yeah. What did you Um, write a report on? Sorry. um, (laughs) (laughs) That was, um, but yeah, no, I think, I mean, I do, I do like this, like, I mean, I will say what I like is that like the idea of like multifunctionality and I do like the idea of like you know what, apparently um, there's not that much news speaking of secretive, speaking of people who only share information they really want to share unless um, the CEO is tweeting (laughs) (laughs) out of his um, mind, out of his mind. Yeah, he's tweeting out of his mind. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Unless he's tweeting some thoughts in his head. Um, 
I, the idea, it sounded like a little bit like it was going to be a throwback 50s or 60s, like roller, like that they would have people who would come up and do um, deliver it to your car. Yeah. Um, and that kind of thing. And they're going to have a huge, there's like two huge movie screens so you can watch it inside while your car is charging or sit yeah. in your car and watch it. So I'm kind of delighted by that. Like, do we need one? I think to me, though, the what makes that cool is the idea if there's just a couple of them, like if there was one, if there was like, 10 around Brooklyn and, you know, and if there's, you know, if they're coming all, all over the country, then I'll probably protest them. Yeah. But there's, there's too many, but I, I think there is value in, in, in offering incentive to buy an EV vehicle. Oh, a hundred percent. If you're going to be able to go to a, a great reef charging station and actually have a great meal as opposed to a gas station, which hasn't really delivered on the promise of being a great place to hang out. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, um, although it, apparently it's taken the place, what was it, Chucky's? There was something, mm. um, there was definitely some outcry about um, about the establishment that the proposed one is going to take over. So, and it will be, I will. I would stand with LA restaurateurs who, and be outraged if he gets permitting in like, six months when everybody else takes 18 months. Yeah, we'll link to that article in the show notes because it's an important topic to cover. I also want to talk about restaurant reservations, which you're right about. I mean, it's been talked about a bit, but my observation is that it's really hard to get a restaurant reservation right now. It is impossible. I mean, what's going on? I mean, we've got like Open Table and Resi as the two main players in the in the reservation services. But still, it seems like there is a real kind of disconnect between the diner and the restaurant. Like restaurants obviously want to put butts in seats, but I'm like not able to book a table anywhere. What gives? Um, It's, I mean, it's got everything to do with like all the topics that you talk about every week and hear about every day, which is that there's um, a worker, there's a shortage of workers. And so restaurants and restaurateurs can't properly staff the restaurant. So it's a lot of them are only open, whereas they might've been open six or even seven days, you know, for, three or three or two meals now they're open four days a week just for dinner so there's concentrated there's concentrated demand for not that much availability so it's i mean i think that's everything i think there's also like a pent-up excitement to go out again you know if you're like oh it's friday night or wednesday night or thursday night and you think you can go out you realize you realize, like, let's go meet my friends. Like, I can't stand to have one more charcuterie plate at home. Let's <laughs> let's go. And so I think I think it's pent up demand, but especially it's a shortage of staff that means there's curtailed hours. Yeah, and I'm empathetic towards operators who can't, you know, staff and then but still have to pay all those overhead costs without the staff. It's it's almost impossible. What about food costs? Do you think food costs are going to level in the next like 12 months? Or do you think that we're still going to see that rise, 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 and that margin is going to really shrink for restaurants? That's the Bloomberg billion-dollar question. Right, um, right. It's, I don't, I don't see prices, I don't see prices dramatically dropping. But I, I do think that there's um, everyone's working so hard to try and contain them or to figure out ways around them. And so, I mean, the thing that's ridiculous that I definitely have a front seat for at Bloomberg is there is a lot of wealth, especially in especially in key cities like in Texas and Miami, you know, is out of its mind with money and New York City, too. So people are spending on things. But I do think at some point if chefs, if like scallops are going for $30 a pound, whereas they used to go for $16 a pound, chefs at some point there's a ceiling on what you can charge for an entree, like or what most chefs 
will charge for an entree. So they'll, like, if they, they don't want to charge more than 40 bucks, they have to take scallops off the menu. Do you feel like this change might actually be a net positive for um, our culture? I mean, I've always said on the, on the, on the show that, you know, if we as a culture, as Americans, we just don't pay enough for food. Like, we I aren't. I could not agree with you and more. And so this <laughs> shift, I just paid five fifty for a cold brew in New York, and, like, a second I was like, and eh, that, that seems crazy. But, like, I've always preached that you should be paying more for coffee. So I feel like, yeah, maybe we should be paying more for restaurants and not dining out as much of it if that's what it takes. I think I, I hate to say it because I love I mean, I'm someone who like when restaurants shut down on March 3rd, March 16th at the start of the pandemic, I felt like I'd lost my family. Like I yeah. felt like like I'd lost my the oxygen that I breathe. So I love restaurants, but I think it's a reality. Like if you and I think the other thing is spend your money really well on like delicious like sushi's crazy right now. I mean, it, I do feel like sushi is exorbitantly priced. Like there's so many five hundred dollar plus sushi yeah. restaurants. But I went to Yoshino, and I feel like I would rather eat a meal there, which was like six hundred dollars, um, and then cut out like three or four other meals that and eat carrots at home, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Because I think, honestly, like, value for the meals that you're going out and, like, really enjoying, which is not, I mean, different than meeting your friends maybe and, like, because there's such a good social aspect to restaurants. But I, I do think that it's a time if you're not running um, Morgan Stanley or <laughs> Tesla, um, it's a good time to consider, like, where you're going to spend your money and then not freak out about the bill. Like, if, mm -hmm. if the average check at a lot of restaurants, in my experience— in New York, if you have like a cocktail or a drink or two, and then like more than more than a main course, it's you're going to spend at least a hundred dollars. Like, and then if the bill starts is now to me closer to one hundred and fifty. Like, instead of freaking out, you say like, okay, now build I know. it into your budget. And maybe build it into your budget exactly. Um, or cook at home is like you talk about a lot <laughs> of taste. Um, on the note of restaurants, let's talk about some of the places you enjoy because you're still, even though you're covering food holistically, you still, I'm sure, are very much on the restaurant beat. So what are some of the restaurants that you've enjoyed recently? So that's a big—so I'm, I'm just going to preface this by saying, like, that's something—and and I think, I wonder, I'd love to know if you see this too, but my relationship to restaurants has changed since I went to Bloomberg. So Food & Wine, I think it was, like, definitely from my job at Food & Wine, but also as part of the culture, you wanted to go somewhere first. Like, you were, like, yeah. if Bonnie's opened in Brooklyn, you weren't—like, you didn't want to go— week two, you wanted to go like the first night, especially with Instagram and take a picture, you know, or Eater changed that I think back in 2007. Is that right? When Eater I mean, started? Eater, yeah, around then. Yeah. Yeah. I think Eater, wait, wait, the idea for first kind of was planted by the early Eater and Grub Street Wars. And I think it's kind of existed, but I agree. I don't, I, I certainly don't think of restaurants that way. I think, in fact, you want to give the restaurant a few weeks, if not a few months, to settle, right? I think, yeah, no, you're right. Like, it became competitive. It definitely became a competitive thing. And even for me, especially at Food & Wine, when you want to, if you're covering restaurants, you want to be first and have an opinion. So if someone asks you, sure. you can speak about it. But um, I think at Bloomberg, where if something's exciting and new, you want to call it out. But it's... Um, you don't necessarily have to go to the first, you don't have to be the first person at a restaurant um, in Astoria um, there. It's more like knowing what the trends are, knowing if someone's using like some really 
if someone's got or like a new way to make cold brew or mm-hmm. something like that, like you sort of prioritize that. And so likewise, especially as a result of the pandemic, I think maybe getting older, but also as a result of the pandemic, I, I don't necessarily feel like I need to go to every new restaurant. Instead, I want to go to the restaurants that I love, that I feel comfortable. And so I just want to go to Barbudo. Like on a yeah. Sunday, I'm not like, oh, my God, let's go to Bushwick. I say, let's go to Barbudo. <laughs> let's go to the West Village. Yeah, Barbudo, the, the new space is cool. I like it a lot. It's terrific. I love that open kitchen. I've seen Jonathan Waxman like hanging out. I mean, he cooks there all the time. It's like respect Yeah, no, that. it's really – it's yeah. exactly. So yeah. I think the restaurants um, – I'm way into Chile, which yeah. is the – have you been there? I haven't been there. I, it was on a list. I'm going to go out tonight. And I was like – that was like one of the three spots I was going to maybe go to. It's just – it's – it feels it feels like it's transportive. It's got like lanterns. You feel like you're somewhere else. The food, there's a couple familiar things. They also make fantastic rice. I don't know how the rice is so good there, but the rice is supersonic. They do a spicy fish stew mm-hmm. with preserved vegetables and chilies in it that I am crazy about. Um, I'm also a little obsessed with El Quixote right now um, in the Chelsea Hotel. Hilarious that that place is back. It's back. And I think it used to be you knew you were there because you saw like a cockroach crawl across the rug. And now no more roaches. And it's cool (laughs) that it's in the Chelsea Hotel. But the bar is really fun. They make these um, gin and tonics that are served in like a goblet glass that Mm -hmm. even though – even though you're like, yay for a big gin and tonic, it's the way it's constructed. It's got a lot of botanicals in it. It's delicious. The pen con tomate, the gambas yeah. are um, are really, really good. And then um, I wouldn't have thought this would be a restaurant that I would obsess about, but I love Chisiamo, the Danny Meyer restaurant with Chef Hilary Sterling yeah. in Manhattan West. Like she's just her Italian food, her cooking is so satisfying. And then Claudia Fleming, my hero in this world, Claudia Fleming is doing the desserts. So. Yeah, I love to see Claudia Fleming doing desserts in New York City and, and Hillary Sterling, long, long-time fan of her work. And Yay. that's cool that she has a new kind of outpost on the west side. Mm-hmm. By the way, for the record, I'm going to Wild Air tonight, which means I'm not going to the newest mm-hmm. restaurant, just the best restaurant. But that is, I mean, that is the best restaurant that I haven't been there now and I haven't been there in a couple of months. Now I'm going to Jones for it. It's it's great. I don't know. I brought that because I think trying to go to the newer spots, maybe it is an age thing, maybe it's a pandemic thing, is a bit exhausting for me. And I, I kind of, like you, I agree. I want to go to places that I know are are either are, are new and solid or just all old and solid, right? Yeah. No, it's not. It's Well, I think also like maybe at some point you wanted to be competitive. I went to Bonnie's last night, the fantastic yeah. like modern Cantonese thing, and nobody asked me how it was. Everybody asked me how I got in. Yeah, that's a little bit annoying. It's, I mean, and you know, it's too bad because, I mean, it's it's so good. Like, you can understand it's exciting to have a restaurant like that hit. Yeah. You know, like someone who, Calvin Eng is like a great chef who, you know, it's it's so good that people, and I think even from the beginning, I was we were talking about this last night, like, it was a restaurant that was really buzzed about that I got yeah. pitches about before it opened. So it's cool to see that it's not just like Danny Meyer restaurants that, come with advanced hype you know someone like like people spotted people saw that coming and it's even better you know than advertised i have to shout great. out tammy teclamarian's uh new york magazine newsletter i mm-hmm. think that each week she um is uncovering some of these smaller spots like uh like bonnie's that are not necessarily funded by a danny meyer or, or driven by pr um she's a guest on the podcast recently mm-hmm. so i'm going to shout her out um, I, I agree. I I really do like the idea that this this restaurant industry is not as PR driven as before. It's like small spots are opening and they're just arriving in 
New York, like fully formed, right? I think that's, you know, it's true. And also with people working from home, you, I mean, it's not like people weren't going like all around, all around Brooklyn beyond Williamsburg or traveling to Queens. But I feel like now you really are getting, um, now you really are like, wow, people are, people are going to restaurants and packing restaurants all across the city in a way that seems much more democratic than it used to be. So it sounds like a little bit like you might be going on a bit of a farewell tour because (laughs) recently you announced that you're moving to London to take over a a kind of a new role at Bloomberg. And so I I was like, Kate's got to be on the show because I wanted to talk to you about all these topics we've been discussing. But let's talk about your move to London. I I mean, how excited are you to have this new city and then all of Europe, like within a short value jet? I'm not sure if that's really a thing anymore. (laughs) Ride away. You could Um, be in Milan in like an afternoon. Yes, I could. I'm. Um, I mean, right now I'm in the traumatized yeah. state because um, I have a lot of packing. I have a very, <laughs> very, very long to do list. But um, I'm also really excited. I love London. Um, as I said, I lived there a very long time ago. I always yeah. liked. I always thought. Um, I always loved English music. I loved English history. I always thought um, English guys were adorable. So the band I, XTC by chance? Do you like <laughs> I the band? loved XTC. God, that's like my favorite band. We can make this an XTC podcast. Um, let's go. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. I was like English bands. There you go. The most uh, English of bands. Um, yeah, no. So I'm going to England. Yep. I'm um, England. Um, Bloomberg just launched a new UK site. We see a lot of possibility mm-hmm. there in terms of just covering everything from politics. Certainly, there's a lot going on with Boris Johnson, but also the culture there is really exciting. It's. I mean, that's a city that has come back really strong from the pandemic. And the food scene there has been really good for decades, but it's growing and growing. And I think they're, it's jumping off like people that had been sort of like a generation of new British cooks now have spawned like a lot of, um, they're the alumni now basically. So that's going to be really, that's going to be really fun to get new city under my belt to really get to go deep on different restaurants. And yes, indeed, we're also want to, um, we want to expand food coverage (laughs) beyond, we want to like take it through Europe and be international. Bloomberg's totally international. So anyone who's listening who has some stories, please pitch me, especially if they're <laughs> around Europe or yeah. anywhere in the world. Well, I, lo- I didn't ask you about the British food tropes because that's BS. Obviously, mm-hmm. British food is the best in Europe, hands down, some of the best. Um, did you, when, you were, when you were thinking about this job, um, did you have a list of stories, like a long list of stories that you wanted to write? Um no, I'm not very organized. I'm very much like a bit of a seat of my pants person. That's a good news but, uh, ethic, you know. You're 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 writing about news, so that's good. Yeah, so it's good to be. Um, but I do I I do feel like there's opportunity. I mean, I think Eater London does a really good job, yeah. and certainly there's like institutions like Lunch with FT for the Financial Times. Sure. But I I do think there's opportunity to expand like the coverage and what food what's happening in the food world there, especially at this stage of the pandemic when people are still, they have some ingrained habits like we've been talking about with our restaurants, but yet they're also, I mean, you can't say go back to normal. I refuse to say that, but where people are yes, yeah. picking back up some habits, picking back up things like going out to eat at restaurants. And so like, yeah. what does that look like going forward? I think there's a huge opportunity to cover that. And an exciting city from a food media perspective, I think what Vittles has done since they launched in uh, the early pandemic has been really cool to follow mm-hmm. on Substack. Um, and I think London is a city that has kind of been undercovered 
a little yeah. bit in terms of media, right? Well, I think I think a lot of the covering. I mean, they have some terrific food writers. Like sure. certainly, Jay Rayner is like Hall of Fame. Yeah. But um, and the guy there did used to be a restaurant um, critic at Bloomberg called Richard Vines, who's a good friend and like wonderful. But I do feel like there's a sort of style there that sure. everyone's adapted and a tone and. So I think it will be really I think it'll be really cool to see what you can what else you can do, you know, what else is out there and how else what you can uncover that is not getting enough air and oxygen. I mean the reviews in London are their own like form. I mean this Truth. The, the the use of irony and the the dryness and the I feel like it's just such a different style of restaurant review and Jay is one of the legends right in the industry but there's a lot of great reviewers there i mean so many it's a birthright that you get to be if you're british <laughs> then you get to be sardonic and yeah. you write like brilliant and biting and a.a gill you know oh adrian gill god shout out best of so um so not touching that not i feel like no <laughs> <laughs> you can't like you don't want to like you like they that's territory that I don't even need to try and compete with, but I do think there's other things to do. What uh, where do you want to visit when you're there? Like you're close, as I said, to Italy, but like are there other countries that you feel like I have an emerging co- cuisine or or something happening that you, that you think is worth covering? That's an excellent question. I um, I'm excited to go to Scotland. I went to school in Scotland a hundred years ago, <laughs> and if you I went to Aberdeen and the um, the food could not have been worse. So this was in the 80s when British food was every trope you want to use. Um, and so if you think it was bad there, think how bad it was in Scotland, in Aberdeen, in the very north of um, of the country. So I'm excited to go back there because I've heard so much about what's going on um, around, yeah. all around, but also in like especially in Edinburgh. It sounds really exciting. I want to go to Germany. I think Germany have always been – my mom was born in Berlin – and um, I've been reading and reading about the food scene there for such a while. Um, so I want to, I feel like I do sort of want to go deep on that, but not just not just there, go around Germany. Yeah. And um, I have a proclivity for Austria, Vienna. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I can honestly say I've heard so much about the food scene there. But actually, Matt, you know where I want to go? You know what is my, where I'm going to go directly is Portugal. Lisbon. Oh, yeah. Lisbon, yeah, it's been... I mean, outside of it, it's like Sintra up and up north in Porto. There's like so many cool things happening in Portugal. I agree. I'm like, why am I talking about all these like cloudy, potentially rainy places <laughs> right. when you, I need to? I need to speak I was to thinking the, to that, the I was sun. Like, don't you want it like your summer and your? I mean, summer extends into like October there. So, Poor. oh, I have one more band thing. Alex James, the bassist of Blur, makes cheese in the Cotswolds. What? Yeah. So I'm just like Matt. Let's do that story. I've I've always I've written Alex James like three times. Uh, I've not heard back Alex James, but I, I think that I, when you think about bands, I think about Blur. I think about Cheese and the Cosmos. We have exactly the same musical. Like I have to say, this will be like a follow-up podcast, but I'm going to get that cheese. Let me see how I can. Have you tried the cheese? I haven't. I've, I've wanted. He has a, a food and music festival up there every year, and I've tried to make it, but yeah. So that's fin- that's fantastic. There you go. That's really good. Please report from the Alex James Food Festival up in the Cotswolds. I will, but I feel like you should come and um, you can write that story. Kate, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited funds, or the burden of deadline, meaning you have <laughs> unlimited time. It's like the dream project. What would that be? Um, I would – I think – I don't know. I don't know exactly how to articulate a cookbook that I wish that I wouldn't want to write, but somebody else would. But I think it would be. I think it would be some version 
of um, like New York City's best foods and recipes, but somehow give people the capacity to really make them, you know? So if you're going to do Prince Street Pizza, you somehow can send people the dough to make. Yeah. Or like like it comes, it comes, it would be a cookbook. So this is completely live an alternate universe I, thing. No, this is part of it, that we can travel in time. You can travel, travel in, in time, time and or get and or get an expert, not just like video help, not just have Prince Street Pizza owners do it. Or um, I'm trying to think who makes the best black and white cookie now because I'm a black and white cookie. Um, but Molly O'Neill did a really great New York City cookbook years ago that I thought was a really That's great what I was service thinking of, to Molly this O'Neill's city. book, yeah. So I think... I'm not saying, like, update that book because that was a very, very good book um, from the great late Molly O'Neill. Yeah. But I wish there was a way that you could update it using using products that you have now, like, or that, like, Gold Belly would send that you could then mm-hmm. order the perfect black and white cookie and then have that as a prototype so you knew then how to make the perfect black and white cookie from I'm having a love affair with Picket Bagel's black and white cookie and what's fantastic about them, although the one near our office just closed, is that you can also get all chocolate and all vanilla cookies, which you just do like once or twice, but then you're <laughs> then you always, oh, Then you go back to the essential black and white. Then you go back to, yeah, no, yeah. the essential black and white is what you have to do. I feel but, Bread's probably has a black and white in their case somewhere. They do have a black and white. Not not your favorite. It's not my favorite. You're saying Pick a Bagel is your favorite, not Zabar's? Um, yeah, Zabar, Zabar's is good. No, but, it's not good. You don't say that. I, I just, I, I want to just like give yeah. it a little. Yeah, no, I'm I will I will say Zabar's is not my favorite black and white cookie, but um, Bread's I love chocolate babka. Like if we're doing chocolate babka, oh, yeah. then Bread's does that recipe for sure, and then you get the babka. So I guess I would do a cookbook. Maybe what I'm thinking as we're talking and I get to really like solidify this and find an agent is that it's like a cookbook that comes with like a hundred products, so you know what you know where you're going for. Like Lou Collie's pizza, yeah. like you get to have the fantastic Semdol. Bacali's pizza, and it also comes with a pizza. I'm into this idea, Kate Kate Crater. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. (gasps) Matt, I'm so excited to be here, and it's awesome to see you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.